independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. And so these workers went to the top of the supply chain and demanded better pay for them, demanded that these big buyers of tomatoes in this case pay one penny more per pound, which would effectively double their wages in the field. But equally as importantly, stop buying from farms that have had human rights violations. And that's radically transformed over 300,000 jobs in the agricultural sector from Florida now up through New Jersey. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to holistic healing, eco-regeneration, and true abundance and wellness for all. This is a community-backed show, so if you value our work, you can support us at patreon.com slash greendreamer or through purchasing our fundraising planners at greendreamer.com slash shop. Today we have here with us Sanjay Rawal, the James Beard award-winning filmmaker of Food Chains and his latest, Gather. Pertaining to the topics of his films, we're going to explore farmworker justice, Native American food sovereignty, and the ties between the two in this episode. Also, if you haven't watched Sanjay's films, I strongly recommend you do so. Gather is the most recent one that a lot of people have been talking about, but actually, if you haven't seen either, I recommend starting with Food Chains and then watching Gather. It doesn't really matter either way, but for me, after watching both of them, I feel like it helps to start with Food Chains and then watch Gather because that's the order in which Sanjay had created these films, so it's kind of helpful to understand how he connected the dots between the two. Anyhow, if you're ready, Green Dreamer, take a deep breath and let's dive in. I went to college in California and studied molecular biology. kind of hated it, but both my parents are PhDs. I took the first opportunity I could to get as far away from California as I could. Still love it, but I moved to New York City to actually study with an Indian spiritual teacher named Sri Chinmoy. He, he passed away in 2007, but I still consider myself a student of his. And he was the one who first encouraged me to start working in the field of human rights. And I got the chance to work with some of his friends like Desmond Tutu and got a fast-tracked education on what service really means in this modern day and age. Did a lot of work overseas, worked in about 40 countries, and learned a lot more about the world than I think I could have at school. Your first film, Food Chains from 2014, documented the struggles of tomato farm workers in Florida as they campaigned and protested against labor abuses, modern-day slavery, unethical pay, and sexual harassment out in the field. A few decades ago in 1960, a film called Harvests of Shame also documented similar farm worker struggles and abuses. And I talked about this on the show before, but it still boggles my mind that over half of the 2.3 million farm workers in the U.S. are undocumented workers and immigrants, meaning they don't have proper worker protections, health care, and because of their status, they can't easily speak out against 
abuses in fear of retaliation or being deported. And yet they, as people often demonized as quote-unquote illegals, are the literal backbones of our entire food system. What do you think has been the most effective ways to secure better rights and fair pay for farm workers, given that they don't necessarily have the law entirely on their sides as other citizen laborers and workers in this country might have? That, that's a great question. And, you know, there, there are laws, obviously, against human trafficking. There are laws against sexual harassment, but there's very little, if any, enforcement of that, whether somebody works in an office or works in an agricultural field. At the same time, there's a, a much higher preponderance of abuses in the distant kind of hidden agricultural realm in America. Fields are much farther away from arms of justice than, than offices are. But the workers in Florida that the movie is based on, the coalition of Immokalee workers, they understood the power of supply chains and the power of the big brands atop those supply chains that really drive the food economy. And I mean the Walmarts, the McDonald's, the, the Burger Kings, the Taco Bells, the consumer-facing brands. There was, there's obviously an incentive for those brands to be offering ethically sourced produce. So the workers, instead of doing the traditional union model and protesting against farmers for better rights, they understood that farms themselves had been squeezed economically. And so these workers went to the top of the supply chain and demanded better pay for them, demanded that these big buyers of tomatoes, in this case, pay one penny more per pound, which would effectively double their wages in the field. But equally as importantly, stop buying from farms that have had human rights violations. And that's radically transformed over 300,000 jobs in the agricultural sector from Florida now up through New Jersey. This group, the CIW, even won the MacArthur Genius Award for their work a couple of years back. So basically with this power dynamic, the farm workers first approached the farm owners who said they didn't have the leverage and power to set the prices. And so who really has the power here are the grocery chains themselves. That That's correct. I mean, the entire food system in America has been turned on its head in so many ways, shapes and forms. But with regard to economics, in 1986, Walmart entered the grocery business. People might not think of Walmart as a grocery store, but of the $400 billion in gross revenue they did last year, more than $300 billion was from grocery. Now, in terms of scale, Goldman Sachs only does about $30 to $40 billion in gross revenue. Google is around the same amount. So grocery stores have a lot more cash running through them. Now, people might say, well, grocery stores have much lower margins. But with that amount of cash, you have a much tighter control over your supply chain. So Walmart entered the grocery world in 1986, and basically they decided on the philosophy of buy in huge volume, sell at a very low price. But what that meant was that farmers had to produce more and more and more and more to be able to fulfill Walmart's purchase orders, and they had to sell at much lower prices than they normally would have. But when Walmart squeezed into the market, they radically transformed the way grocery was enacted. There were some 60 or 70 different grocery chains around the United States, but in order to compete with Walmart and to be able to buy in the volume that would allow them to sell at prices that could compete with Walmart, those grocery chains had to consolidate. 
Now just six or seven chains control more than 80% of the American food system. And so we start seeing the same types of products. We lose variety. We lose seasonality because everything has to be grown in such high quantity. At the end of the day, there's a tremendous pressure on the environment. There's a lot of fertilizer, a lot of pesticides used. And farmers, again, like you said, are being squeezed from all sides. And the part of the supply chain that bears the brunt are the workers. I just looked this up recently. Publix, the grocery chain, which was the target of the farm worker justice campaigns shown in your documentary Food Chains, they still haven't agreed to meet with the farm worker organization representatives. And they claim that this is a labor dispute. So they want the farmers they buy from to set the prices and they would just pay for it. So it's not their problem to deal with. But if they're the ones who really hold the power, does this argument just not hold up? I mean, this is the conundrum of the American economy. P- people can remember that the very first economy in the U.S. was completely soil-based. When settlers and colonists came from Europe, they were coming to grow cash crops. Yes, they harvested timber. Yes, they hunted. But they came here to grow tobacco, to grow cotton and other non-perishable items that could be sold at a very high value in Europe. They realized that They could steal large, large tracts of land from Native Americans through force. And then in order to keep the economics much more profitable, they began importing slaves from agrarian communities in Africa. That was the primary engine of the entire U.S. economy through the Industrial Revolution. And so it wasn't until the Industrial Revolution that labor began to be treated fairly, Land began to have deeper value than just its soil, but it's those underpinnings from that pre-emancipation era that still, the, the legacies of that still exist in agriculture and still exist throughout our food system. Now, some of the workers you worked with did have a chance to speak with politicians about their their worker rights and their concerns, but I wonder how much of their achievements were actually made through the political system, or were they mostly realized through direct action, organizing, and mobilizing against the grocers themselves? Well, that, that's a great question. You know, most of, of federal government has really ignored the farm sector, especially on the immigration side. Under George W. Bush, there was a comprehensive immigration package that was actually pushed by Republicans that was very close to passing. But when Obama was elected, for whatever reason, the Republican side of the Senate and the House stopped advocating for that. I mean, there's always been issues with labor in America, which is why unions have had to form, et cetera, et cetera. But when the New Deal was passed in the 30s by Franklin Roosevelt that was supplying the first set of worker protections, in order to get the Southern Democrats to sign on to the bill, they had to exempt domestic workers and farm workers. So domestic workers and farm workers in those days were, were, were predominantly African-American. And obviously there's a huge racial element there. Domestic workers have since been able to get themselves into federal protections, but farm workers don't have federal protections. So it's state by state in terms of how they're treated. California is really the only state that has a comprehensive set of laws, labor laws that protect farm workers. Everyone, everywhere else, they're on their own policy-wise. And so like the characters in food chains, 
farm workers generally have to try to appeal to customers rather than policymakers. With all this said, do you think we have a better shot at securing better farm worker rights and justice through grassroots organizing or through trying to seek top-down policy change? Because it seems like there are a lot of barriers with this latter approach. Exactly. I mean, and that's the case for most American workers around the country. We look at the gradual erosion of the middle class, and that's primarily due to the lack of worker protections. When unions were strong, the country was 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 strong economically. And the same thing with, with farm workers. It's like until they're protected, our food system isn't protected. One of the main issues that's happening right now during this administration and during COVID is the lack of mobility for farm workers and the lack of, of access to labor that farmers need. And so when farmers don't have labor, they can't harvest their fields. When they can't harvest their fields, they can't sell their products. Grocery stores, they don't care whether they're buying from America or whether they're buying from Mexico or Peru. They're always going to go to places that have the, the cheapest prices. And that usually means where labor is cheapest. American farmers, if they don't have products, they can't push politically for grocery stores to buy from them. So if they don't have labor, they don't have products. And we're seeing the gradual erosion of the American farming economy due to lack of a flow of labor. At the end of the day, we've become so used to paying as little for food as possible. I think now food expenditures account for maybe 8 to 10% of global household income or U.S. household income. But we don't necessarily realize the long-term costs of that short-term savings. Mm. You know, the cheaper the food is, the worse quality is it is. The larger scale it is, the worse it is for the environment. The, the less connected we are. So I, I always advocate for people to really invest their dollars into their local food systems, even if their grocery bills are two, three, four, five dollars more per week. That long-term investment makes a much stronger community, and that much stronger community is in, is in return a much healthier community for us. Well, I believe Americans used to spend about 18% of our household income on food back in 1960, and that's pretty much halved to about 9% in 2009. So it seems like everything else has gone up with inflation, but food was left behind. Yeah, it's 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 dropped precipitously, mainly because food, the price of food has I mean it feels like it's getting more expensive, but as a as a percentage of our income, it's actually become cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And that's really due to these the consolidation of the food industry and those companies being able to charge very low prices or making very little money on each item sold, but instead of just selling a thousand widgets, selling tens of millions of widgets. One part that was really memorable for me from food chains was when a farm worker talked about how sometimes it would get really unbearingly hot working out in the fields. So they would stand close to where the pesticides were being sprayed because it felt good in the heat and it was cooling, but they didn't necessarily know that it was toxic. In a lot of the campaigns for fair treatment of farm workers, are they able to have any say over the methods of farming they're told to practice by their superiors? Or do you think that's beyond the scope of what they have power over? So their priorities are mostly about fair pay and accountability for abuse. 
which would make sense in terms of the order of things you would fight for first as um, your basic human human survival and your your worker rights. That's a great point. There was a, a landmark study done by the UC Berkeley Public Health, School of Public Health that actually showed that poverty was of greater health consequence than pesticides and pollution in the fields. Um, they, they tested families who lived in Salinas. And even though workers would wear a, quite a bit of protection in the fields, or their skin would be protected by their blue jeans and their shirts and their hats, when they'd come back home, they would wash those clothes in a bucket by hand. You know, there was such a preponderance of, of vermin and cockroaches in their living facilities that they would spray them with Raid and other aerosol sprays. And that was primarily due to, to lack of funds to go to a laundromat and lack of funds to live in more secure housing. And they found that the toxicity that that, that resulted in was actually much higher than the toxicity in the field. So poverty is the killer. And once people have more money, then they can begin making the, the short-term changes that affect them the most and then gradually go for those longer-term changes, policy-related and workplace conditions-related. Well, moving on to Gather, which is your latest film, it shows an intimate portrait of the growing movement amongst Native Americans to reclaim their spiritual, political, and cultural identities through food sovereignty while battling the trauma of centuries of genocide. And you say this new film picks up where food chains left off. So how do you see farm worker exploitation proceeding or being tied to indigenous food sovereignty? That's a great question, and it goes to something I, I referenced briefly earlier, that when settlers and colonists came from Europe, they were coming to farm, but they were coming to farm on a very large scale, and they needed land. The United States, or what's now the United States, was not a wilderness at all. It was a carefully constructed set of interlinked ecosystems managed both from flora and fauna by the indigenous for millennia. They needed land and they needed labor. Natives were the first source of those labor, but it was hard, and I hate to say it this way, but it was hard to enslave people who knew the land and knew how to escape and knew where to escape too. And with pandemics coming, natives died at a much higher rate than the economy wanted. And so people went to Africa and purchased slaves. And so the, the initial theft of land and the initial theft of bodies went hand in hand. Food Chains looks at the legacy of agricultural labor and the economics that went from chattel slavery, where labor wasn't paid, where labor was a very low economic value, 
to the similar conditions in the fields right now where people are seen as disposable and are paid very, very little compared to the work they're doing. Gather looks at that theft of land. And more importantly, the tactics used by the United States to keep taking land as we marched westward. You know, the Native American tribes were dug in. They were very, very powerful. And it finally took the U.S. military realizing that war was not a solution, that they had to actually destroy Native American way of life. And they did that by destroying the environment, by destroying the food. There was a general who famously spoke to the U.S. Senate in the 1860s saying, one dead buffalo is two dead Indians. And that launched a federal campaign to destroy bison in the Midwest. The Midwest was once the third largest carbon sink in the world, all organized around the flow of the tens of millions of bison, of buffalo, that roamed the United States. Once all those buffalo died, natives were taken from the land. They were they died. They were forced to accept government rations, and it opened up the land to settlers. And ironically, that great carbon sink that provided so much health for the entire world now is the poster child for bad agriculture. It's all monocropped corn, which ironically is an indigenous crop. So Gather looks at the obverse of that coin of slavery and looks at the theft of land that made our food system possible. I think it's really powerful that both of your films relate exploitations against the land and earth with exploitations against farm workers and native communities so powerfully. Recently, as we're recording this call during the fall of 2020, there's been some controversy around the documentary Kiss the Ground, which focuses on regenerative agriculture. Primarily, the criticisms revolve around the film being white centering and perpetuating white saviorism. And regenerative agriculture and caring for the soil are sort of presented as a breakthrough solution to climate change. Beyond the diversity of representation in a film about climate change and climate solutions, which one would hope can be expected in the year 2020, what do you think is lost in a film about land regeneration when the voices of Black, Indigenous, and experts of color are largely sidelined? I mean, that's a it, it, it's a really deep and rich topic and debate that needs to happen. Films like that do the field an injustice because they point out the problems without pointing out the cause of those problems. Mm. The, the cause of the degradation of soil was this then European-centric movement to capture as much immediate value from topsoil as possible. And as farms began to deplete the topsoil in the colonies, they began pushing westward. Now, in 1763, the British government issued something called the Royal Proclamation of 1763, which forbade American colonists from crossing westward of the Appalachian Mountains, because primarily the British government didn't want to, didn't have the money to support the protection of those farmers. Number one, why would farmers need to march westward? It was because they'd already destroyed the fertile lands of the East Coast. Why would the British government need to protect farmers who were marching westward? It was because those farmers were stealing land in the West by force, and they needed military protection against natives who were trying to reclaim their land. 
when Kiss the Ground kind of presents the monocropping of the Midwest, it doesn't talk about the settler colonial economy that stole that land and destroyed it in the first place. It also begins to frame movies like, and I'm not not going to harp on Kiss the Ground, but there's, there's a movie like that every couple of years that really showcases problems without really stating that the class of, of people that are supposed to follow a certain solution are the class of people that created the problems in the first place. Mm. So Kiss the Ground doesn't point to the solution being equity, diversity, inclusion. It doesn't include the people that actually develop those practices that are now rebranded as permaculture and regenerative agriculture. So regenerative land caring is, in fact, not a new breakthrough, but rooted in many indigenous cultures around the globe. And it wasn't until the recent decades or so when Western science has validated some of those ideas or practices through research, such as through the finding that in a teaspoon of healthy soil, there are more living organisms than there are people on the earth. When all along, though, many indigenous cultures had always viewed the land, the soil, the water to be alive and worthy of respect. And I guess this raises the deeper question of why does indigenous knowledge accumulated over thousands or tens of thousands of years need to be validated by Western scientists in order to be deemed legitimate? And I wonder, in working closely with the people that you featured in the film, if this topic came up at all and what you would add to this. I love the question. I would like to reframe it. You know, the, the, the agrarian cultures that have practiced, you know, the, practiced farming for millennia, they, 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 are, they are scientists themselves. They work within a system of ecology much more than they work in a system of modern chemistry. You know, they they worked empirically. They worked scientifically. In fact, modern geneticists look at the genome of corn and at how intensively it was bred thousands of years ago and realize that's a marvel of modern genetics, although it w- was developed, again, millennia ago. That said, Sir Albert Howard, he was a principal figure in the early organic farming movement. He was a, a British scientist who worked in India as an agricultural advisor, but he wrote his first book about organic farming while he was in India. He realized that East Indian farming practices, which I count as, as traditional farming practices, offered a much better solution to overall soil health than the conventional farming that was done in the UK and in the US. So people have have validated indigenous farming methods for almost 100 years now. And every few years, we hear uh, uh, people in a new piece of media saying like, we just discovered this, we just discovered that. But from the time settlers hit the new world and marveled at the soil economy, they knew that there was much deeper science at play than they understood. And they took it, which is fine. It's like knowledge shouldn't have any any ownership, but they took it and they destroyed the systems of the people they took it from. And then they claimed that they created that knowledge. It's like somebody stealing my car and repainting it and saying it's their car. And me living on the block saying like, hey, wait a minute, (laughs) you've got my car. Like imagine how I feel at the same time, maybe I built that car and I know it infinitely better than you ever could. 
This was also super fascinating as well. The student researcher that you featured in the film, Elsie Dubray, her thesis was that because the bison, native to Turtle Island and this American continent, because they had evolved here, they may have developed the instinctive knowledge of which herbs and grasses and plants to graze in order to self-medicate and to be able to meet all of their nutritional needs. And therefore, they might be healthier than cattle here that were displaced and brought in. We had talked about the wisdom of the palate through the lens of behavioral ecology back on episode 199 with 191 with Fred Provenza, which I highly recommend our listeners check out if this topic interests you. But this led me to think about how many indigenous cultures, because everything revolves around place-based relationships, have not separated, you know, wildlife, food, culture, spirituality, ecology. They all intersect to make up the traditional life and food ways, which is why while their struggles may be branded under the name of, for example, food sovereignty, it is simultaneously about revitalizing cultures, healing communities, and healing the lands as well, such as through bringing back the bison and salmon to where they belong. Was this sort of the more holistic picture that you wanted to showcase through the film, which was about food, but also about so much more? That, that's exactly it. It's the idea that food systems are based on interdependence between different levels of life, from fungi to plant life to animal life. And the example of the bison is a great one. You know, over millions of years, the entire a number of ecosystems in North America, from alpine ones to to ones near the Everglades, it all oriented themselves around the the flow of bison. Insects followed bison. Bison droppings fertilized ground. Bison hooves stamped seeds into ground into the ground. Basically, the environment evolved around this apex animal that the U.S. government began a concerted campaign in the 1800s to destroy. The bison population was taken from 63 million plus to 23 individuals, which were kept in Yellowstone as a relic. Most of today's modern bison herds have all been descended from those. You know, if you can imagine that scale of destruction, it's it's mind-boggling. The short-term consequence was that the Industrial Revolution got a huge supply of bison tendons and bison pelts, which actually formed the first belts that were used in motors. And it also cleared the land of millions of very powerful animals that could trample cornfields of settlers and allowed the farming of the Midwest. But without the bison, the topsoil wasn't regenerated. And with the incredible kind of push to plant, the, the Dust Bowl was created. And that was, that's one of the flaws of the movie Kiss the Ground. They talk about the Dust Bowl, but they don't talk about how that area had never been a Dust Bowl until it was settled by non-natives. And so when we look at how we can regenerate our environment, we have to understand that we're not the apex predator here. We are just the stewards. It's our job understand how everything needs to play a role within a very complex system. That's ecology. And that's where you see the intersection between native science and Western science. It's literally in the field of ecology. Well, I just have to say that both of your films really moved me. Um, Your team just did an incredible job contextualizing 
culture and history and ecology in ways that help us to understand the wholeness and depth of these stories. When you're going about planning a storyline as a filmmaker, what do you intentionally do to ensure that you're being mindful of telling these stories in the most effective, inclusive, and compelling way? You know, every filmmaker has a has a different perspective, but you know, myself and many of the filmmakers I I really respect, we approach filmmaking as journalism. We're we're trying to present reality. Yes, there is an academic point of view. It's like otherwise you wouldn't actually have a structure to a film if you didn't have a point of view. But I'm trying as accurately as I can to portray reality. And for me, that means treating my characters as experts and really getting to understand what the entirety of the field is, what all the perspectives are, and calling from that what the truth is. That's the difficulty that that I feel, you know, is created by, again, films that that are that come out every couple of years and have a lot of sensation, but they don't last very long because people feel like there is a little bit of untruth, either scientifically, academically, or sociologically. And so I I know from my Native American friends that have heard about Kiss the Ground you know, they're fine with it. They don't really care that it exists or doesn't exist because it's just the same old, same old. Until people's hearts change, until people understand that the goal is oneness, they don't begin to see how their actions cause other people pain. And how can we build a just society when there's still pain? So I like to present films that hopefully don't cause marginalized people pain and presents their reality unflinchingly, truthfully, but accurately. Because at the end of the day, people just want to learn more about the truth. They don't want to feel like they've watched something or learned something that's inaccurate. And my final question I have for you before we wrap the conversation up is, after exploring both farm worker justice and native food sovereignty, what would your call to action be for our listener if they wanted to support these causes? That's a great question. Well, you know, Native American rights is a, is a very deep topic. Much of federal policy and much of the policy of the last of the capitalist policy of the last few hundred years has been directly against natives. So there's a lot of mistrust in the native community towards people outside wanting to help. So number one, it's understanding, it's finding out who the native communities are in your area. And number one, understanding whether they want us to be involved in their food sovereignty practices or in their food practices. Number two, if if there is a possibility to support them financially, You'll find them at local farmers markets. You'll find even displaced indigenous Oaxacan, Chiapan, and Guatemalan producers that come from indigenous backgrounds that now live in the continuous United States. But by patronizing native food businesses, we can support those communities in very effective ways. And on a fun level, when people go to foreign countries and come back and try to cook those foods, it's always not really that good. You know, we can look at the ingredients that we use in our own cooking from corn to tomatoes and potatoes. And and if we understand that those ingredients came from native communities here, by connecting with native producers, 
even if they're selling things that we think we're familiar with, I think we'll get a much deeper understanding of what those ingredients are, how to prepare them more deliciously, more tastefully. So it's creating that link between us and Native American food producers that I think is a really good and easy step forward. What's an uplifting social media account or a publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? Well, I, I think we both connected through the Instagram account, A Growing Culture. Mm. It's wild, it's, it's unfiltered, and it definitely gives me uh, thought. What do you tell yourself to stay motivated and inspired? Well, I, I try to tell myself just simply to be happy, to be happy, to be grateful, and to, that gives me, it gives me a sense of resilience and power that doesn't seem can come from such, such kind of wishy-washy sentiments. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet and world at the moment? Well, I'm, I'm, it gives me hope, you know, meeting people like you and having these types of discussions. You know, I know somebody once asked a spiritual teacher poetically, what makes the universe happiest? And the spiritual teacher said, the universe is happy when two friends talk. And I realized that in these moments where two friends like us talk, everything's fine in the world. And if we had this closeness, this trust with everybody, strangers and not strangers, the world would be so much more livable. Well, Green Dreamer, if you want to learn more and stay updated on Sanjay's latest documentary called Gather, you can head to gather.film, and you can also find them on Instagram at gatherfilm and on Facebook at gatherfilmproject. You can also find Sanjay himself on Instagram at mrsanjayr. Sanjay, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? I would say continue listening to the Green Dreamer podcast, re-listen to episodes. It's opened my mind to a lot of topics, and I can't wait to, to see what the, the future holds for you. Green Dreamer, we're coming full circle here. If our show has moved you, we'd love to get your direct support at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Today's intermission song feature is Black Moss by Johanna Warren. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I will catch you in the next episode. <laughs>